If you have your Bible, and you should, open up to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. If we haven't met, my name is Mark, one of the assistant teaching pastors here at God Speak, specifically on Sunday nights with Pastor Zach. <clears throat> if you haven't met, come up and say hi afterwards. Don't do that thing where you just come in and listen and judge, walk away, you know. <clears throat> come up, say hi afterwards. We like putting names to faces, though Zach and I admit that we struggle to remember them all. So, we there? Hebrews 12? <clears throat> Hebrews 12. Big chapter, I know. Luckily, we're only going to do every single word, okay? <laughs> so, you're like, I've seen him take a paragraph and go two hours. <laughs> and they're laughing because it's true, and so... You're like, you're flipping, you're like, 12 has a lot. (laughs) So I'm going to stop talking and just get to it because we got a lot to get to. Sound good? All right, I'm going to pray first. We'll settle our hearts and then we'll rock and roll. Jesus, just thank you. Um, Thank you for this time. Thank you for the opportunity to open up um, the words that the Holy Spirit has inspired. I pray that these words would not simply be... a historical precedent, a historical historical document that that Jesus, you would not simply be a historical figure, that these would be the words um, living and breathing sharper than a two-edged sword that not only come to divide the intents of the heart, but also come to comfort the afflicted. And so as we take a look at this chapter, I just pray that uh, those that have come that are discouraged currently in their faith they would be encouraged. And even those that are encouraged in their faith right now, would they learn more about how to encourage those who are discouraged? And so you have something for all of us in this chapter. Certainly you've had much for me this week. And so I just pray in the short time that we have um, that you would you would pour out on your kids, that you would love on your children in ways that I possibly cannot. Uh, Holy Spirit, would you take these words and turn them into a sermon? Would you score the hearts um, of your people? Would you, as I said, love and care for them in ways that I certainly cannot. So we love you, Jesus. Can't wait to see you again. Thank you for all you've done, for all you're doing, for all you have yet to do. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So if you were here last week, if not, no worries. If you were here last week, um, I mean, I, I, I kind of confessed it was going, going through kind of a tough time in my faith, you know, kind of discouragement, feeling deflated, I think was the word I used. Um, I know maybe some of you, uh, in fact, I, I was really sweet. Like, this doesn't happen to me often. Like, I'm not a senior pastor on staff, so I don't hear a lot of times much feedback throughout the week because I go to my weekly secular grind at the day job. And um, a couple of you wrote me this last week just kind of thanking me, being like, hey, thanks for being, like, raw and honest, like, legit. Like, sometimes things suck, you know? Um, and if anything, I hope that kind of some of my deflation encouraged you in the sense that don't feel wrong when that happens. Like the Bible is clear that it happens. You don't, we don't have to put on Christian nice all the time. It, it, it doesn't glorify a God when we fake that we're happy all the time. Um, there's a joy that's with us, I pray at all times, but that doesn't mean that, that the circumstances are great all the time and that we pretend like if people don't see I'm real, I'm raw, and I'm going through some tough times right now that, that Jesus won't be glorified because you know, hate, hate to remind you that Jesus went through some tough times, right? And so it's entirely part of his plan that we experience some of that as he experienced it. 
Um, and, and maybe some of you are like, all right, like had your slump. That was kind of cool. Like, just like tell us this week, like you got rocked and like everything's all better now. And to be honest, it's not really. I said it last week. Like, does that, does that freak you out? Like sometimes things just take a while. And, and, and I, I think by God's sovereignty, we were building into this chapter. I, I certainly needed it. I didn't come out of last week like, oh, preach a sermon. Now everything's great and I got to go walk in. It, look, we're in, I'm in the same world as you. Pastors, whether they're on staff or not on staff, are in the same world as you. Don't put us outside of that. Like we're inoculated from it. We're not. We go through tough times. We go through doubt in our faith. I remember asking my dad, who was a pastor for 40 years. I remember when I was asking him as a kid, like assuming his answer would be no, because I like wanted his strength in that moment. Like, dad, do you ever just like doubt your faith? He goes, of course. I'm like, wait, what? Wait, you're supposed to tell me no and that I shouldn't either, right? Like, he's like, of course. Of course, he goes, God isn't scared that you doubt. God isn't scared that you go through tough times. God's not scared that you tell friends that you're struggling, that you tell your pastor you're struggling, you tell your family you're struggling. It's in those moments that he's often most glorified when people see you cling to Jesus. In some of those tough times, I'm telling you, like I've experienced it from other people. Like I'm like, man, you you should just be distraught as all heck. And like, I totally am. Everything's a mess, but I still have Jesus. You know, it's been said sometimes it's not until you feel as Jesus is the only thing you have that you really understand that Jesus is the only thing that you need. And so for those of you that come here tonight, you're at a point, look, and here's the sad thing. Everyone's like lights and trees and holidays. This is statistically one of the most depressing times in America. Isn't that sad? We are victims of our own success in this country. I tell this to my boot campers all the time. We have more ankle injuries like per capita than any other country in the world. Why? Because we have amazing shoes. And you take those shoes off, and we have no stabilizers in our ankle. We don't. That's why we have so many ankle injuries. Because we don't build up strength around our ankles. Why? Because our shoes are awesome, and we don't have to. And in America, a lot of things are awesome, right? Like, no joke, if you're like, if you live in America, you're, you're in, welcome to the, everyone's like, I'm, I'm the 1%. If you're in America, welcome to 1%. No, but I don't make that much. You make enough to be in the 1% the world over. And yet holidays and everything's supposed to be the best, it's actually when we see some of the most depressed times. So this isn't always a happy, joy, go lucky time. Some of you are going through some big discouragements right now in your faith, whether that's with school, whether that's with relationships, whether that's with family, whether that's with friends, whether it's just going through, you've been shaken in your faith. We all go through it. I'm standing you before you right now, telling you I'm in it right now. It happens. But thank goodness God isn't silent when we're there. Thank goodness. And as I said, whether you come here discouraged or you're like super pumped in your faith right now, like praise be to God on both sides because this chapter should either encourage you if you're discouraged or if you're encouraged, I want you to learn how to minister to those who are discouraged and build up some more ammo for the next time because here's one thing I know for sure. At some point, you will become discouraged again in your faith. It's certain. And it's okay. But this is a big chapter. It's a huge chapter. And we're going to go through all of it. I tried to stop at some point and I couldn't. I had to get to the kingdom that couldn't be shaken at the end. I just had to selfishly. So we're going to be, we'll be out by midnight probably, but we're going to um, endeavor here. And so the author is continuing. The pastor is continuing from last week. Remember, he didn't write a big 12 right here and say, hey, take a break, come back next week. This was one long 
sermon more likely than letter. It was one long sermon. It was basically like taking our notes, though way better, and just seeing how he was going to preach, he or she. We don't know the author. And so this is, this is still coming out of last week. If you weren't here last week, the sermon will be up on the website and you can take a look at that, is how this is just building because he's speaking in this moment to Jews who had converted to Christianity and who were becoming discouraged. As we're going to see, it wasn't like full-blown martyrdom yet, but they were beginning to be very uncomfortable with this newfound faith. They were beginning to get squeezed a little bit sociologically socially, economically. They were beginning to, to feel some of the, the hints that they're standing for something that the, the culture doesn't want any part of. And perhaps it's more like America now than ever. And so as he's continuing this, we remember last week we came out of the hall of faith. Remember that? We didn't go through the entire chapter, but we took a look at some of these bulwarks of the faith and the author, this, the, 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 the pastor, the preacher was very eloquently encouraging them by, by hearkening back to some of the fathers of the faith, like a good example. You know, we do that a lot of times. We go back in America's history. We go back to founding fathers to look for these times of strength among, you know, great tribulation. And so he's come out of this, setting this example of these fathers of faith, these, these people, these men, these women that were bulwarks for the faith. And he's, so he's building this encouragement in this chapter. He continues. I would say he just, he tries to unleash. He's coming to the end of the sermon. He, he's, he's peeking out before he, he gives his salutations before he ends. I'm gonna give that chapter to Zach next week. Right? Like he, 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 he just, he, he's building, he's, he's coming up, he's, he's crescendoing for all you musicians. He's, he's, he wants to stir encouragement among God's people in this moment. And so he says, therefore, we also, coming out of this hall of faith, coming out of these examples of faith into chapter 11, says, therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, he's talking about, look, all these people we're talking about in the hall of faith and the word cloud, don't overthink it. All right, but you got to think a little bit. It was actually used for a great number of people. It's like saying there was a cloud, there was a, a gathering, not necessarily a literal cloud. The word used in the original language is, is, a, is a gathering of people. He's saying like these examples of faith, which are now gathered, right? As this cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And so he's describing this sort of these champions of faith are now spectators from heaven. Some use this to argue that people in heaven can see what goes on on earth. There's kind of a divide. I don't really care where you fall. I don't, I'm not even going to take a position. But some, some would argue that, that there's evidence now that, that, that these, these fathers, these mothers, these figures of faith are looking down and they're watching and they're encouraging from heaven that we would, and then he goes into some athletic language, that we would run this race. He says, lay aside every weight. A lot of times we think it's only sin that holds us back. But he says, lay aside every weight and the sin. Some things that are holding you back in your faith from pursuing, more passionately pursuing Jesus, they're not even sinful. 
Like I, I love using those examples of things that we make idols and I use really good things like family and work and children and relationships and career and all this sort of stuff. And you're like, those aren't bad things. I know, but when we elevate them to, to God things, they become bad things. It's not even that all the things in your life holding you back from passionately pursuing Jesus are actually, they're not even all sinful. They're just weights. They're just holding you down. They're dragging you down from this passionate pursuit of the one who rescued you. So it says, lay aside. This cloud of witnesses is cheering us on as we endeavor to overcome present discouragement. It's almost like an athletic competition. So the author uses that analogy. It says, lay aside every weight, whatever's weighing you down from pursuing Jesus. Some of those things need to be redeemed. Some of them need to be discarded. I don't know what that is for you, but if something is weighing you down, You need to either redeem it or get rid of it. Even if it's not sinful, you have to look through the lens of that passionate pursuit of Christ. Not to be saved, but because he saved you. So it says, lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares you. It catches you, it traps you. It's a difficult word to translate. I've got it here, and as you know, I don't pronounce them because I would butcher it. But in the Greek, it means easily avoided, which is interesting. God says he'll never, he'll never put a temptation in front of you that isn't given out. The word used for ensnare says it can be avoided. It's like barbed wire. You can go around it. Sometimes we don't choose to. It's interesting. It says, and I'm, again, we're just looking at the Greek. It says there's four basically meanings. Easily avoided, ensnaring, we sort of get that. Dangerous, we sort of get that. The one we don't get is admired. It's that sin that is so easy for you to admire. We don't like to talk. We like to talk about disgusting sin. It's awful. You forget that the Bible says sin is sweet for a season. It's awful. Sin is awful. But sometimes it's sweet, is it not? For a season, the Bible says. It's, it's, it's admired by us for a season. Some of us go to great lengths to defend it for a season. To say that it's not a sin for a season. Say it's not that bad of a sin for a season. Say it's not as bad as that guy's sin for a season. Look at him. He's a mess. She's awful. These are the sins that ensnare us. There's things that weigh us down that aren't sin, and then there's the sin that gets you. And just when I just when I describe that, I trust that the Holy Spirit brings it up in you, the one that's doing it for you. I don't have to know. I don't have to know. That's the beauty of it. I can rely on an active Holy Spirit that says, hey, yeah, that. I don't have to try to come up with enough examples to spark in. You're like, I have no clue. What would it be? Give me a list. So it says, lay those things aside. It says, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. See, when you start in your faith, whether you're saved at 14 or 40 or 80, doesn't it feel like a sprint? I mean, don't, I mean, not many people are like, I sort of had like kind of like a casual conversion. So like, what'd you do this morning? I got saved, went to Starbucks. <clears throat> they were out of coffee. So we went to, I was at Starbucks one time when they ran out of coffee. Hilarious. That's why I drink espresso now. She turned me on to espresso. But see, drug dealers, they just get you either way, right? But, but, but most of us, I think most of us have had some of, have had that fervency, Yes fervency early and then you just got exhausted right because then like 
Tuesday happened, right? Get saved this weekend and Monday. You're just praying for people, like revival in the Caneo. And then like Tuesday, you're like, I'm still tired of this. It's crazy, like, right? You know what I'm talking about? You're laughing because it's true, right? You see people just face down, like, I'm over it. Like, bro, you've been saved for like 36 hours. Like, no one got saved with me, you know? And we just, we get on this sprint mentality. The Bible simply declares you need to have a marathon mentality. A marathon mentality. And you know, the people that run marathons, those people are crazy, right? Those people are absurd. They're like out of this world, okay? 26 miles. For what? Right? Mm-mm. But that's the idea is that, is that look, and, and they train for marathons knowing that it's not going to be comfortable. I was actually a sprinter in high school. I, I loved sprinting on the track team. Why? Because it was over fast. It's like, Wah! done. How'd I do? You got eighth again. Well, 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 at least I'm done for the day. Marathon runners know they're going to be out there for hours. Honestly, hours. And they know it's gonna, things are going to start to hurt. They know that little knee injury is going to come back up again. They know that if their shoe isn't tied just right, it's going to bug them. The type of clothes they wear, do they have enough water? Do they have stations? Do they sweat? Do they wear a headband? Do they not? Ponytail bun? Do they, they, they prepare for the haul. This long haul, because there's a lot of stuff that happens along the way. And the body starts to break down over time. And we have to prepare for feelings of our faith breaking down over time. And it scares a lot of people. So they think, oh, I don't know if I'm saved. The Bible says he's been placed in the Father's hand, no man can remove. If Jesus won you, he'll never lose you. But you may question it at times. You may backslide at times. But just as we talked about last week, having that eternal perspective, you guys remember last week? that we work for restoration now here today because we have an eternal perspective and we want to show people that now. He's continuing this idea. It's like running with endurance. Endurance. And there's fervency and there's times of great joy and there's times of great progress as we see. But you need to know that this is a long haul. Do you ever see that? There was like a car commercial. No, it was an investing commercial, I think, where they show some dude just running and then some dude like blow by him. Like, yeah, you know, guy's just still running. What happens like three quarters of the way through the commercial? He just passes the dude. Guy's like gassed. He's on the side. <gasps> and he's like investing is a marathon, not a sprint. That, we're, that we know that it's going to take a while. And it feels like it, doesn't it? He says, run with endurance this race. The author of Hebrews is not the first Paul loved to use sports analogies, by the way. Wrestling, boxing, running. Paul was a huge fan of using this sort of language. He says this in Acts 20, 24. He says, Nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of God's grace. Paul knew he was in it for the long haul, and this dude was getting beaten for it. He was shipwrecked multiple times, bitten by a snake. I've told you, I don't do snakes. That's when I'm like, God doesn't want me to be a missionary. No snakes. Don't do it. Shipwrecked, stoned, beaten, pummeled. Dude would just get kicked out of cities, pick back up, dust himself off, and head right back in. It was a marathon. Paul says that I may finish my race. And 
And this idea of race just simply means that we're going to encounter conflict and struggle of various kinds. Look, you're going to, if you're not right now, you're going to, I can promise you this as a pastor, not because I hope for it, but because I understand it, you will come into conflict and struggle in your faith. Most, I think 100% of people here know it, maybe 99%. You know it. And so he says this, he says, but let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. But he doesn't just simply say run, he gives you how. He gives you the resource. It's not Red Bull, right? It's not carb loading. He says this, here it is. Here's the answer. Okay, Pastor Mark, how then? How do we run? Come up, I need a list. 10 things this week, I'll do them. I'm pretending, none of you actually asks for lists. I usually give them, you don't care about them. But But like, okay, fine then, we'll run. Show us how, he does right here. And if it's not enough for you, you don't get it. And he says this, he says, Looking unto Jesus. How do I run the race? Look to Jesus. Okay, but what after that? Uh, If it's anything other than that, it will deplete. It will run dry. If you try to tap any earthly resource, if you try to tap a relationship, if you try to tap a pastor, if you try to tap a church, if you try to tap your family, if you try to tap a friend, if you try to tap a spouse, if you try to tap your children, if you try to try to tap a career, your school, your ego, your pride, your lusts, your desire, alcohol, drugs, if you try to tap all of those things to endure this thing of faith, it will, I'm telling you, though some of those things are good, some of those things are bad, All will run dry. I will fail you. As a pastor, as a friend, I will fail you. So my message is not to rely on me for the source of strength in your faith. Though I want to be there to shepherd and care and love on you through hard times, because that's my calling as a pastor is to reflect Jesus in that way. My greatest The only thing, the greatest thing I can tell you right now when it happens, and maybe some of you have come to me in the past, you're like, oh, he did that, is to simply tell you to gaze upon Jesus. Get closer to him. It doesn't mean the circumstances will immediate change. Sometimes they will. But if you want the unending resource, it will be setting your gaze upon Jesus. That, if you remember nothing else, that, is what will sustain you through hard times. That. It says, look upon Jesus. He says, the author and the finisher of our faith. Earthly resources will deplete, but Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith. Philippians 1.6 says, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Until the day he comes back. Jesus, that he be the author and the finisher of your faith. And I was actually thinking about this today at the gym, is that the book on your faith, individually, each one of you, each one of you, the book on your faith has been written. We struggle because we're only a couple chapters in. We want to know ahead of time. 
and we can't always. But you need to know that, that the book of your faith has been written from the moment he first laid eyes on you, from the moment he thought of you before you were even conceived in womb, to the day he returns, he knows all that happens. He knows all that occurs. That book has been signed, sealed, delivered. Your faith is and has been completed in Jesus, but we struggle because we're just a couple chapters in and we want to know what the end looks like. Know that he who is faithful to begin that book will be faithful to take you through to the end of it. That make sense? We're a couple chapters in and we're impatient. We want to know five, six, but he's saying, look, you're in four, you'll get there. And he'll guide and he'll shepherd and he'll steer and he'll care and he'll comfort you on the way and some bad things are going to happen. But it's been authored and it's been finished by the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And so he says, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. He's not saying that he enjoyed the cross. There isn't a person on the planet that thinks that Jesus endured and that he had a love for what happened on the cross. In the garden the night before, he said, Father, if there's any other way, let's do that. If there's any other way to to accomplish the salvation of those who would accept me, I'll take that now. The cross was going to be horrific. He knew that. It says he despised the shame of it. It's the most disgusting way to die ever invented. It wasn't that he endured the cross and he loved it. It was that he endured the cross because he knew where he was headed. And so for us to say Jesus suffered, but I shouldn't have to suffer is complete arrogance. It's completely absurd. And I'm reminding myself of this. That Jesus suffered, but Christians won't suffer. Christian means little Christ. Means Christ-like. If we're to be like him, how dare we think that we don't suffer too? It wasn't the joy set before him because the cross was awesome. It was the joy set before him because he knew eternity would be awesome. That's what we talked about last week. It's why I ended in Revelation 21, just describing how awesome heaven's going to be. It's going to be amazing. It doesn't mean that things don't hurt now. That's the difference between happiness and joy. It's that we have a, a steadiness, a trust, a faith that looks beyond these circumstances. And I know it's tough. It's easy to preach. It's harder to do. I know that. I'm going through it right now. So I have to settle back in peace and joy in what is ultimately to come rather than the frustration and the lack of happiness in the things that currently are. For the joy that was set before him, he endured this cross. Despising the shame. Jesus had this eternal perspective amid earthly turmoil And if you want to know how you can be more like Jesus, meditate on how awesome heaven's going to be when you're going through something terrible on earth. Have a joy set before you about the things to come, though your happiness may be in a tank because of the way things are. By the way, in John 16, 33, Jesus said this, these things I have spoken to you, that in me, in me, 
Jesus says, you may have peace. In the world, you will. He doesn't say you might. Jesus says, in the world, you will. You will have tribulation. But be of good cheer. People are like, I wish I could hear from Jesus. I'm I'm struggling right now. Okay, Jesus says, be of good cheer. Tell me something else he said. Jesus, I want to hear from you. Okay, Uh, you're going to have trouble. Be of good cheer. Be of good cheer. In the world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. Why? Because he says, because I've overcome the world. He sits outside the world. He created the world. He's sovereign over the world. He's not saying that it's not going to be awful. He says, you're going to have tribulation, but be of good cheer. Why? Because that's not your fate. In me, you'll find peace amid the tribulation of the world. Why? Because I've overcome the world. No one has ever said that before. No Old Testament prophet has ever said that they overcame the world. Muhammad never said he overcame the world, though he wanted to overthrow it. Buddha never said he overcame the world, sin and death. Krishna, Mary Baker Eddy. No one made the claims that Jesus claimed. He said, in me you'll find peace. Why? Because in the world there'll be tribulation. But be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Not just circumstance, the entire thing. And so he says, for the joy that was before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame and this, he says, and he sat down on the right hand of the throne of God. I just want you to know tonight, you hear me say it a lot of times before we go into worship. You're like, where is Jesus? I'll tell you where he is. He's currently sitting on a throne in a glorified body, the same body that he rose from dead, which still resembled him. People knew who he was. We're going to get that same sort of body. I think we're still going to look a lot like we do now. Why? Because Jesus in his resurrection looked a lot like he did then, and he still had the scars. It's going to be an eclect. I've said it before. If you don't like diversity, you're going to hate heaven. It's going to be a diverse, mangy group. It's going to be crazy from all nations. It's going to be amazing. But you need to know right now, where is Jesus? We cry out all the time, where is Jesus? I want you to remember that he's on a throne. Not a far-off, distant God. He's given you the Holy Spirit to comfort you here and now. But you need to know that Jesus is on a throne of God in a glorified body. And the promise for us is that we will live with him forever in a glorified body as he has. Our bodies are going to break down. We're going to be put into the ground. The Bible says that Jesus will call everyone and all of those will rise, some to righteousness and some to destruction. But the promise is that we will be glorified as Jesus is in glorified in heaven. And so it says Jesus sat down at the right hand of the throne. It says, for this, it says, verse three, for consider him who endured such hostility from sinners, such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. He says, if Jesus encountered hostility, certainly you will as well. And keep in mind the original context. He's talking to converted Jews. He's like, they're starting to get squeezed a little bit in their culture. They're starting to get squeezed a little. People are like, I'm not going to do business with you. thought you were Jewish. Well, Jesus, came, the Messiah is here. The whole thing that was being prophesied, he showed up. I'm following him now. The whole Old Testament was about him. I've seen this. Eh, I don't know. We're not doing business with you anymore. They're starting to get squeezed a little bit. 
And he says, for consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. John 15, 18 through 21, Jesus says this, if the world hates you, you need to know that it hated me before it hated you. That's why it's almost arrogant of us to think that we won't encounter trouble if Jesus encountered trouble. If the world isn't in conflict with you, you're probably not following Jesus. Mic drop. Like if the world isn't in, if you're not in contention with the world, it's probably because you're in the world. And you're of the world. No, everything he does is kosher with the world. That's a warning sign. No, we're good. Everything she says on Facebook is normal to me. Whoa. Everything he says when we talk about faith and politics and morality, whenever we talk about just your non-believing friends, like I find no conflict. I'm not saying we go out to seek conflict, but Jesus said, I came to bring a sword. He knew that good doctrine would divide. He says, and if they hated me, of course they're going to hate you because they hated me first. He says, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. I should have just kept going instead of trying to make it my own thing. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. People are like, I don't, I don't know anyone. I don't think anyone really hates me. Warning sign. Warning sign. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all things they will do to you for my namesake, because they do not know him who sent me. He says they don't know God. So when they see a glimpse of him in you, they become hostile. The only thing atheists do is prove Jesus right every day. They prove Jesus the greatest prophet of all time. The God-man himself, the capital P prophet of which all the little P prophets foretold. It says, because they don't know he who sent me, they will be hostile toward you. But be of good cheer. Jesus is on his throne. It says this, don't be weary and discouraged. So the opposite of that, of course, is what? Be energized and be encouraged. Verse four says, you have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. He says, look, this is how we know that they weren't necessarily facing martyrdom yet, but they were starting to get squeezed. In America, we don't know martyrdom yet, but I think we all agree we're beginning to be squeezed. Yeah? The Bible doesn't apply to my life. I don't know which one you're reading. Which translation? They're beginning to get squeezed socially and economically. I'm not going to do business with you. Really? I don't know if we can hang. You, you voted for who? You believe what? You go where on Sundays? Sunday nights? That's weird. On Wednesday, twice a week? You're one of those fundamentalist freaks, aren't you? You believe the Bible is archaic, that you believe in some spirit. You believe that you're indwelled and that he regenerates your heart. You start to, I don't know. That's, that's getting a little goofy. That's getting a little odd. It's radical claims. Why do we keep asking like the claims of Christianity are like normal and everyone should understand them? By the world standards, are absolutely crazy. Of course. That God came to earth, became man, and was brutalized and died for the sin of the world. I know. But no other religion at the core of its teachings humiliates their God. It says, look, you haven't, you haven't resisted the bloodshed yet. But you need to know through the course of the church, at some point, Christians will. 
He says, verse five, and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. He says, my son, do not despair the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons and daughters. For when a son is there, whom a fa- for what son is there whom a father does not chasten? I don't have enough time to do this properly, but I need you to know that the Bible uses the word chastening on purpose because it's different than punishment. Some of you have been made to believe that God punishes you for your sin. I cry foul because Jesus was already punished as your sin. God didn't need to dole out a little extra more because you were so bad. We think highly of ourselves that God must add to the cross because our sin was so bad. But the Bible does clearly say that he chastens. He does discipline for future events. He does humble He does allow in his sovereignty, though he does not create evil. He authors no evil. He does allow all things to have to, to occur. John first John one five says, God is light and in him, no darkness at all. God doesn't author sin, but we must be honest and know that God allows it. That is a proper understanding of his divinity and his sovereignty, that he doesn't author sin, but he does allow it to take place. Yes? Because let's be honest, this whole thing, this whole thing we call earth should have ended in Genesis 3. One sin, done. He allows it, and he provides a solution to it. But in keeping with some of the language that we're going to see too, coming up on trained, there's, there's this athletic theme. And you need to know that, that in, in this sort of analogy, think of it as a good coach. There's a, a game being played, a race happening, and a coach must direct, must steer, must allow things to happen so that we learn. So that we learn. I just got done coaching. I, I know you've heard me joking about my little six-year-olds, right, doing the AYSO soccer. They were Epic, by the way. Best team in the league, clearly. Okay, and uh, little Golden Dragons. If you follow me on Instagram, I'm sorry for what just happened the last 12 weeks, okay? All right. But there is discipline that isn't punishment. It's tough for us to get the two. I've used the analogy when I joined the Marine Corps. I stepped off the bus and they were yelling at us. Why? Bailey knows. Get on the yellow, right? Get on the freaking, freaking, Sorry, get on the yellow, they use way different words. Get on the yellow, get on the yellow footprints, get on your face, start pushing. We hadn't done anything yet. They weren't punishing us, they were chastening us. They were preparing us. They were allowing for things to transpire to prepare us for hard times in the future. And going back to the coaching analogy, He cannot author evil, but he is in the process of pruning us. And this is some of the definitions coming out of the Merriam-Webster, a pruning process to have a restraining, humbling effect on. This is admitting that God allows everything to happen, often for reasons behind our finite comprehension. And one thing that we do know is that one of the reasons God allows hard times in our lives is so that we can comfort others when they go through it. I'll use this example. Most of you know I have three kids. Not many of you know that we've been pregnant five times. 
We have three here. We have two in heaven. Did God make our miscarriages happen? No. No. There isn't a shred of my being that believes God said, that baby dies on my account. The world is sinful. It is fractured. It is broken. It's not that he caused it to happen, but God did allow it to happen. And Carissa can now minister to women. My wife can now minister to women, has ministered to women in ways that she could not have fathomed had she not gone through it herself. Had we not fallen on the floor together twice. Had we not gone through that? Did God want it and will it and make it happen? No. Did it happen by his sovereignty? Did he allow it? Yes. And one of the ways that God uses that together for good, it doesn't mean it was good. All things work together for good. For those who love Jesus, who are called according to his purpose, Romans 8, 28. He didn't say that all things that happen are good, but he does say that all things that happen will be worked together for good. And Carissa can now minister to women who have had miscarriages in ways that she could not possibly If God simply saved all Christians from miscarriages, we would have no ministry to women who have miscarriages. Pruning, humbling, allowing things to happen in this world that will chasten us, that will prepare us for ministry and other things down the road. In 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 7, if you want to write that down, I won't read it. He goes through, maybe I'll give you just one of the verses. I'm going to read the whole thing because it's Bible. It says this, 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 7. It says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of the mercies. Again, this is on the idea that he allows things to happen so that we can comfort others later. Who comforts us in our tribulation that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. I'll stop there. He says, he's going to allow things to happen in your life. Maybe some of those things that you're going through right now. And what's going to happen is that he's going to comfort you. He's going to come to you. He's going to compassionately love and care for you. So that when your friends who don't know him need the exact same sort of thing, you're on mission to then display to them the same sort of compassion and comfort and love and care that he gave you. See, this is how the world has to deal with the concept of a living God. Selfishly, you could do other things with your time than comfort a friend going through something that you've been through. I've been there, buck up, let's roll. He says, I came to you and I comforted you. Now those who don't know me and can't get direct to the source, I send you as the ambassador, go love and care for them. Now the world begins to see the character and their nature of God now. And Christians act like we don't have a mission on the planet. We're just waiting for Jesus to come back. Show them Jesus before he gets back. And he says, God deals with you as sons. Now, look, I understand that some of us have good earthly fathers. I'm in that camp, not ashamed to, I'm not, I'm not ashamed to say I have a great dad. For some of us to say treats you as sons and daughters, that conjures up good thoughts. But for a growing number of people, that conjures up very bad thoughts. And you can't relate to a loving father. You can't relate to a dad that sits on the floor and picks you up. You can't relate to that. The call on the Christian life, whether you had a good earthly father, whether you had a bad earthly father, is to accept a perfect heavenly father. A perfect heavenly father. As amazing as I think my dad was, he's still imperfect. 
he still can't care for me the way that God can care for me. And he'd be the first one telling me that. That's part of what makes him a good dad. It's pointing to a perfect dad. And so whether it conjures up good thoughts for you, whether it conjures up bad thoughts for you, lay those at the cross and accept a perfect father. David Guzik, the pastor in Santa Barbara says, we have not all known the experience by experience what a model father is, but we do all know by intuition what a good father is. The reason you, some of you know you had a bad father is because God placed in your heart that that's wrong, that's not good. And he wants to show you perfection. And so we accept that and it says, this it says, if you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. All he simply means here is that there are people who are, think they are beyond God's correction. This is those are illegitimate sons. Those are not part of God's family. Those who believe they are beyond correction in this life. God calls them illegitimate. Furthermore, verse 7, we have had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect, have we not? Has there ever, ever been a time where a father, an uncle, a, a, a godly man in your life gave you correction and you honored it? Just once, just once where you're like, I was wrong, that's right, I was wrong, he's right. And you accepted it. And maybe you fought against it, but you understood that this was good correction and you were performing bad action. He says, if you've ever respected that, how much more then do you accept the superior correction of a perfect father? Because an earthly father can still only be an imperfect father. And I'm one of them now. I'm still only as, as well as I can try to be. I am still always imperfect. And he says, if, you've, if you respect good correction from an earthly father, how much more stoked should you be on perfect correction from a perfect father? He says it like this. says, furthermore, we have had the fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be subjected, subjection, in subjection to the father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastening us as seemed best to know but he for our profit. See, because he knows how the whole book ends and he knows the steps you need to get to. And so he provides correction along the way because he's the author and the finisher and we're on chapter three questioning if we need to go through this. And he says, but you're not going to have a ministry in chapter seven if you don't. So he says, for indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed to be best for them, but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present. He's like, look, no one likes to get spanked. That's what he said. Original language. says no one likes spanking. Okay. It's a joke. Still okay to laugh in church. It's not illegal yet, but we'll see next year. Okay. It says, now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, Afterward, 
It yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. He said it's uncomfortable for sure. He says, but focus on the result of chastening more than the process of it. Focus on where God is going to take you after the chastening than the hurt and the pain of going through it. The eternal perspective. And he says it's going to be painful. But be more focused on the result than the process. Jesus was far more concerned with the result of the cross than he was scared or unwilling or not wanting to partake in the process of it. And that was literal punishment. That was the wrath of God being poured out upon him. But he, with that eternal perspective, endured it with joy. He says, those who have been trained by it. Another word that comes out of the ancient Greek for the world of athletics. As an athlete is trained by some agony. Who's been an athlete in their life? Raise your hand if you've ever played a sport. Look, I'll even, I'll, I'll even like, look, theater. Who's done theater? Who's done music? Like, look, there are uncomfortable physical times in all of those, right? In, in theater, in music, in sports, all, all of this is, is this training, this process that has some pain involved. Yes? I mean, think of ballet dancers and the, the, their toes get shredded, right? That they be trained, that, that, that athletes be trained, that they be disciplined, that they be corrected in form and function and purpose. As an athlete is trained by some agony, so are we as God's, quote, spiritual athletes in this race. So if you've accepted correction and pain for the sake of a game, how much more stoked are you on accepting some of the agony, though it's not fun, for the race of faith that God calls us to? He says, we've been trained by it. Do you trust that he's a good coach? Do you trust that he's a good father? Do you trust that he's a good God? And I love this. Then he gets applicable. This is where he goes into applying this part. He said, hopefully you've now been encouraged. You've got an eternal perspective. And now he's going to sort of rally the troops. He's still, again, he's talking to converted Jews. He's like, here we go. You ready? And he says this, therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight the paths for your feet. So that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. I'm going to tell you he's going to do four things in terms of his application. He's going to tell us to get strong. He's going to tell us to get right. He's going to tell us to get bold. And he's going to tell us to take heed. So if you want to write something in your Bible tonight, right there by verse 12, I would write get strong. See, we, don't, we, 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 we forget that we sometimes, but, but I'm not strong. Sometimes you just need to be reminded to be strong. I'll give you an AYSO illustration. It's like my favorite one right now. Last game, right? Two Saturdays ago. We could go yesterday. My boys not used to losing. My Golden Dragons. They eat other teams for breakfast. They got the purple jerseys and they terrorized people, right? My cute purple, get them, right? Not used to losing. Not loose to being scored on. My boys. We play a team that we've beaten before called the force. 
We beat them, but they were way more physical than us. We, they had a couple kids who I call thumpers. One kid I'm pretty sure was like 18, and he just comes up like, Poof. have a seat, child. Poof. It was like O'Doyle rules. Like if any of you know that reference, this kid, my wife's like, one of them's O'Doyle. What are you going to do? The kid's like 400 pounds. He's just like, Poof. So we beat them last time, but they physically almost terrorized us, okay? We go into this game finale with these kids. They come out the gate fighting. We go into halftime, we're down 5-1. My boys don't know what that feels like. They are devastated. They are defeated. I seriously looked at my assistant coach and was like, this is my Vince Lombardi moment. (laughs) If this goes right, I retire today. (laughs) Unless the Olympic coach calls, you know, but like, so I bring him in. I bring him in. I kid you not, couldn't have planned this. He's like, what are you going to say? I'm like, watch. (laughs) Ben, watch this. Come here, boys. Come here. I sit him down. I said, what's the score? And they go, 5-1, coach. (laughs) That's such little jerks. I said, how many points, how many goals do you guys normally score in a game? They all looked at me. It's about 10. I said, you are better than them. You, lest I remind you, you score more goals every game than any team in this league. Hands down consistently. If you play your game, if you play soccer the way you guys like to play soccer, you have fun the way you like to have fun. Simply reminding them that they are strong. You guys score twice as many goals as they currently have. I said, we win this game. And I called each one of them by name. and said, Dan, you win every ball. Ethan, you win every ball. 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 You went through the whole line. Simply reminded them that they are strong. Didn't tell them to be strong, reminded them that they are strong already and they've shown it. They went on a 13-0 run. They never scored again. Blitzkrieg the living daylights out of them. <laughs> 14 to 5, destroyed them. You should see, the, I have a picture of Ethan's face like, when they won. Like, <laughs> like, it was like a kid coming down the chute next to him, like running like this. And Ethan's like, <laughs> you know, Ethan's a sweet boy too. He's like, this guy lost bad, you know. I simply reminded them that they already were strong. So sometimes it's not about what do I do to get strength. Sometimes it's God simply telling you that you are strong. Be strong. Conjure the strength that he's given you already. It's not that you need to find new strength. It's just that it needs to resurface again. He says, therefore, strengthen the hands, the knees, and the feet. He says, get ready to do things on mission. Get ready to move for Jesus. Get ready to move on mission for the church. Get ready to do a restorative work in the world now. Get strong. So that's my exhortation on you. As you go into finals, as you go home for the break, as you go back into work tomorrow, as you go back to family, as you go back to friends, as you go back to career and faith and finances, be strong. Be strong because you're tapping divine resources, not earthly resources. He says, be strengthened. He says this, this is where he implores us to get right. He says, pursue peace with all people and holiness. He says, get right. Get right with men and get right with God. 
peaceably renew, restore relationships with the folks in your life and have a renewed commitment to holiness. Oh, I'm not legalistic. Neither was Jesus. And he'll never call you to add to God's word, but he will call you to grapple with what he says. And he says this, I love this. I'm going to use this first probably for the rest of my ministry when I talk about holiness, because this is perfect. He says, pursue peace with all people, restore relationships with all people in your life. And in the original language, all means all. Sorry, bad news, all. But he says this, and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. You're not being holy to be saved, you're pursuing holiness because you are saved. And the outcome of that is that other people will see God's holiness when they look at you. It's not that you're perfect. It's that you're pursuing a perfect God. And that's how people today deal with the God of forever is when they look at Christians who serve a living God and are willing to submit their lives to him and put them on a track toward holiness and sanctification. And they begin to grapple with the fact that this God thing might be real. Not because you want to be saved. You want to placate a capricious God. It's because you have been saved by a loving God and therefore you want to please him. And so you pursue holiness in your life, not self-righteousness, but holiness in your life. Why? Because then how else will the world see God? Jesus showed up and they still rejected him. I wish Jesus would come back and just prove that he existed. He tried that once. And the world was still like, nah, I don't buy it. You think Jesus showing up now is going to convince them? No. We see it in the tribulation. They, They bind up Satan for a thousand years. And you know what God does? Let's him go. Why? Because then what happens to the people? They start following him again. It's one last chance to show that people will choose not to follow God. He says, you show them holiness. Now they'll begin to grapple with the idea of a living king. Because why on earth would you do that if he doesn't exist? And my question to you is, why wouldn't you do it if you believe he exists? It's not self-righteousness. It's not legalism. It's holiness. So he says, get strong. He says, get right. Pursue peace with all men and holiness with, without which no one will see the Lord, looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest anyone, lest any root of bitterness spring up, cause trouble. And by this, many become defiled. Lest there be any fornication or profane per- person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance. It just means turning from sin. He found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. And I love this. He hearkens back. He says, for you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire and to blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words so that those who heard it begged that they would, that the word should not be spoken to them anymore for they could not endure what was commanded. And if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid. 
and trembling. Let me break this down. Exodus 19, 10 through 25 explains Israel coming to Mount Sinai. I'm I'm just going to rattle this off because I want to get through the logistics of it. The mountain was fenced off. There was no trespassing or there was pain of death. They were commanded to wash their clothes, abstain from sexual relations. There was thunder. There was lightning. There was a thick cloud. There was the sound of a trumpet calling forth the nation to meet with God. There was more smoke like a furnace and earthquakes. Then a trumpet sounded long until Moses spoke and God himself answered. God spoke to Israel from Sinai but warned them in every way possible to stay away. Israel was understandably terrified. And he sets that up to say, that's not the mountain you approach. The way that God dealt with Israel is not the way that he deals with his people anymore. Some of us still present God in our hearts that way. And when it says we must fear God, it's, it's, it's a reverent fear like a son fears his dad because he knows that I have more power than him. But my sons are not afraid of me. They know I'm not going to abuse them or hurt them or be unjust to them. I protect them. I care for them. I love them. And so they have a reverent fear of me that's very, very healthy. When dad calls their names, they stop. Asher. And that kid doesn't stop for anything. And he stops. That's not the mountain that we approach anymore. It says this. It says, but you have come to Mount Zion. That's the mount that Jerusalem sits upon. Our relationship is not modeled after Israel's experience with Mount Sinai. Romans 6.14 says, For the sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but grace. Hebrews 4.16, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. Isn't that what you want? Don't you want a God that says, come to me proper, come to me boldly, come to me. Don't be afraid of me, come to me. He says, come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Some of you want help, but you're not coming boldly before God. You're trembling, you feel dirty, you feel sick, you feel decrepit before him. You're afraid in an earthly sense. And he says, come boldly to me and ask for help. He says, you have come to Mount Zion upon which Jerusalem sits. Hebrews 8, 6 says, but now he, that's Jesus, has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is the mediator of a better covenant. Newsflash, the New Testament is better than the Old Testament. The New Covenant is better than the Old Covenant. The way God deals with his people now is better than the way that he dealt with them then. It's okay to say that because the Bible says it. And there's Vast difference between the Mount Sinai incident and what he calls us to in Mount Zion. I'll give you a short list of nine. Because I like lists. I haven't done one in a couple sermons. Mount Sinai was marked by fear and terror. Mount Zion is a place of love and forgiveness. Mount Sinai is in the desert. Mount Zion is in a city of the living God. Mount Sinai spoke of earthly things. Mount Mount Sinai spoke of earthly things. Mount Zion speaks of heavenly things. At Mount Sinai, only Mount Moses was allowed to draw near to God. At Mount Zion, an innumerable company, a general assembly is invited to draw near. It's not a representative. I don't approach God on your behalf anymore. Thank goodness, because I've got stuff to do. 
It says Mount Sinai was characterized, it doesn't say my list says, Mount Sinai was characterized by guilty men in fear. Mount Zion features only men and women made perfect. Mount Sinai brings an old covenant which was ratified by the blood of animals. Mount Zion brings a new covenant which was ratified by the blood of Jesus. Mount Sinai was all about exclusion, keeping people away from the mountain. Mount Zion is all about invitation. Mount Sinai is all about law. Mount Zion is all about grace. Same God, two dealings with his people. The mountain of fear is passed away. The mountain invitation stands before you to enter boldly before the throne of grace that God may care and love for you in ways that you can't imagine and you can't receive from an earthly resource. It says, but you have come, verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. See, this is where I get my list, by the way. So you thought I was like making it up, I'm not. And it says, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Remember we took a look at Abel a couple weeks back, or last week? And it's not the blood that was part of Abel's murder, it was the blood that he offered God. And he says the blood offered by Jesus was better is better. The blood of the Old Testament covered sin. Jesus' blood takes it away. It's gone forever. The Bible even says that it could never atone for sin. The Old Testament sacrificial system could never atone for sin. It could simply point forward to the one who could. And then he ends here and he says, see this. So that was get bold, by the way, verse 18. So he says, get strong, get right. Verse 18 is where he starts, get bold. Verse 25 is where he says, take heed, take heed. He says, listen, focus, stop, listen. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him, who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth. But now he has promised saying, yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken as of things that are made. That the things of which cannot be shaken may remain. Everything we know in this world can be shaken. Some of you know that better than others. Your career can be shaken. Your family can be shaken. Your relationships can be shaken. Your schooling can be shaken. Everything in this world, good or bad, can be shaken. Your faith can be shaken. He says, therefore... Since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Let us have grace 
It's not arrogance. As the things around us shake, as the world shakes, as calamity strikes, as relationships break, as friendships die, as marriages divorce, as careers plummet. He says, remember that you can go out into the shaking because you're anchored to something that cannot be shaken. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. When your anchor is set in heaven, nothing shaken on earth can lose it. And though culture, we work for restoration in culture now in every vestige. I'm in business and I love business. I love business. You can't pay me to get out of business. People ask, why aren't you on church staff? Because I am called into business. And the business world shakes constantly. And I seek to redeem the time that I've been given. I seek to redeem the resources I've been given. I seek to steward the things that have been given. Seek restoration and justice now in business because it's a reflection of the kingdom that's to come. No matter where you are in life, no matter where you are going, things will be shaken. Set your anchor in the kingdom because cultures can fall, but the kingdom will always be on the rise. The shaking of the earth will never be evidence of the decline of the kingdom. All cultures ultimately will decline. We seek for restoration now as a picture of heaven today, but you need to know that all cultures ultimately will decline And our job is to branch out into them, seeking restoration, anchored in a kingdom that will never shake. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptedly with reverence and godly fear. He says, in Jesus, you will find acceptance for our God. Everything outside of that which is in Jesus will be burned by the consuming fire. Everything found in the end days outside of Jesus. That's why we're called in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. Hundreds of times in the New Testament, in Christ. Not Christian, that's used like two or three times. In Christ, in Christ, in Christ, because in Christ you're accepted. And he says, God is a God of consuming fire. And all that outside the protection and the cloak of the righteousness of Jesus Christ will be consumed in that fire. So be of good cheer. This kingdom cannot be shaken. Amen? All right, let's pray. God, thank you for this chapter, selfishly, personally. I pray that those that are here that are in a time of discouragement would be encouraged. I pray that those that are in a, in, a, in a terrific spot, praise Jesus in their faith, I pray that they've, they've simply learned how to encourage others, that they would continue to meditate on the fact that though trouble will come, that we have a joy that's set before us, Jesus, as you did before the cross. That your blood is perfect and that it atoned for all sin for all time so we can come boldly before the throne of grace, seeking restoration in our community, in our schools, in our careers, in our marriage, in our friendships, in our families as a picture of things to come, that we pursue holiness to show a broken and lost world 
that God really does exist. God, thank you that though we know ultimately the things of this world will be consumed with fire, you put us on mission to restore things now as a sign of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Jesus, I thank you for what you've done. I thank you for what you're doing in the lives of every single person that's here tonight, individually, one by one. And I thank you for what you have yet to do and you have promised to do. We love you. Jesus, I can't wait to see you again. Amen.